research scientist in the TBI lab at Kessler Foundation, and I'm here speaking with Dr. Sarah Raskin. Dr. Raskin is a professor of uh, psychology and neuroscience at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Thank you very much for joining us today, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we heard from you earlier today, uh, you gave a fantastic lecture about the assessment and management of prospective memory deficits in a variety of neurological disorders. Tell me, how did you get involved and interested in prospective memory? Well, that's a good question. So when I was doing uh, some cognitive remediation work in the Seattle area, we had sent out a questionnaire to all of the individuals who had brain injury that were part of the Brain Injury Association of Washington, um, just asking what were the cognitive deficits that most affected their daily life. And so, of course, the questionnaire was phrased, you know, which of the things that cause you the most problem, forgetting my doctor's appointments versus forgetting what I did yesterday. And what we found was that... Um, the number one problem that people felt really impacted their ability to function in their daily lives were what we refer to as prospective memory, which in other words is the ability to remember to do things in the future or to carry out an intention. Um, This was many years ago, but a couple of other researchers have since replicated that when asked what people find the most troubling, prospective memory always seems to bubble to the top as something that people are concerned about. And so that's really when I first became interested in thinking about both how do we measure this function that nobody was really measuring very much at the time, and also then how might we help to manage it. Right. And this is something that similarly, when we talk to patients or even friends and colleagues, They often say that that's something that is really impactful to their everyday lives. I think a lot of people can relate to the idea of, oh, I forgot to send so-and-so a card on their birthday, or, oh, I had that meeting that was supposed to start 10 minutes ago. (laughs) So I like that aspect of it, that it's very relatable. People understand how these sorts of deficits impact their everyday life and also how frustrated they feel by those. Exactly. So you're the author of The MIST, the Memory for Intentions test, and that measures both time-based and event-based perspective memory. Could you tell us a bit about the difference between the two and why they might be important? Yeah. Um, so a time-based task is a task in which you have to actually be monitoring the passage of time. So it might be something, for example, um, take your medication at 2 o'clock. Or it might be, can you call me back in 10 minutes? Mm -hmm. So either of those would require monitoring time through some time measurement device, like a clock or your phone or a watch. Event-based tasks are tasks in which there's a cue in the environment that you're responding to. So it might be an alarm going off. So when the oven alarm goes off, you need to take the cake out of the oven. Or when you pass the store, you need to stop and buy milk. Or when I hand you an envelope, you need to write your name on it. So these are are, um, tasks in which there's an event. Something happens. You go to the library, and when you do that, you need to return your library book. Typically, most people find that event-based tasks are easier to perform because they don't, both of them require you to remember the task, Mm -hmm. but time-based tasks, in addition, require you to monitor time. And because of that, it's kind of an extra burden on your ability to remember to do things. Okay. And it sounds like there's a difference between the type of brain injury or the type of neurological disease that you might have and how that impacts either time or event-based perspective memory. So it sounds from your talk earlier that uh, while event-based tasks are usually a bit easier, a lot of 
populations with neural deficits experience more difficulty with time-based perspective memory tasks, is that right? Yes, so so exactly. So what you've said is exactly true. So for everybody, in general, event-based tasks are simpler than time-based tasks. But what we find is that while that's true in every population, for certain people with certain kinds of disorders, the difference between them and somebody their age who doesn't have that disorder is greater for a time-based task than it is for an event-based task. So the, the kind of deficit that they experience having had this disorder impacts time-based tasks more greatly than it does event-based tasks. Mm-hmm. And so now, especially here at Kessler Foundation, we're really interested in how do we start to fix these cognitive problems that people are reporting having that are impactful in their everyday lives. So you mapped out a, a great roadmap of how to assess the deficits as well as how to rehabilitate them. Uh, could you tell us a bit about that multi-pronged approach? So for many years, we've been um, sort of doing a one-size-fits-all, thinking about what kinds of things might work for people. I work primarily, the remediation end of my work is primarily people who've had traumatic brain injuries. So a car accident or a fall. We also work with people who've had stroke or tumor in the brain. Um, And so we've tried things like visualization, which does work pretty well for lots of different people. So you actually say to yourself, okay, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to imagine myself doing the task. And this type of visualization is used in for lots of different people in lots of different occupations and hobbies, but it also seems to work well in remembering to get things done, even in people who've had a brain injury. Um, but what we found was some people it worked for and some people it didn't work for. Mm-hmm. We weren't sure, you know, when you put all the data together, it looked like the group was improving, but we could see that there were some people that were just not, it wasn't helping. Okay. So then we started to tease it apart and we started to think about you know, prospective memory is complicated. Mm -hmm. If you think about having to remember, even just having to remember to call your doctor at two o'clock tomorrow, you have to be paying attention to the fact that somebody told you to call your doctor at two o'clock tomorrow. You have to pay attention to the time. You have to stop whatever you were doing and shift and now pay attention to the task that you're doing because you're not just sitting there waiting for it to be two o'clock. You have to remember what it was you were supposed to do at 2 o'clock. Because mm-hmm. we'll often say, oh, it's 2 o'clock. What was I supposed I to was do? I was supposed to do something, but what was it? Yeah, Exactly. And that's more of there. a retrospective memory. Mm-hmm. And so there's so many pieces to a successful prospective memory um, completion that we thought, well, maybe some people have an attention problem. And other people have a retrospective memory problem. And other people have a set shifting problem. So we started to tease apart based on our test, the MIST that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Well, if they get this kind of error, then it's a tension problem, and we should treat their attention deficit. If they make this kind of error, then it's an executive function problem and a planning, because that's the other part of perspective memory is planning. Mm -hmm. So let's treat their planning deficit. If they make this kind of an error, then it's a retrospective memory problem. So we've tried to create modules that um, specifically target the exact deficit that this that's causing this person to fail a prospective memory task. Well, and it definitely speaks to how complicated the uh, the construct is, where if any one of those things goes wrong, the whole system really falls apart. So you may you may have one of five different reasons for forgetting to remember to call your friend on their birthday. And either way, it just looks like you forgot, but there's different <laughs> ways to work around fixing that. 
And we we talked about uh, how a lot of people in this day and age really rely on their compensatory strategies, things like their cell phone, their smartphone, their calendar at work, uh, their uh, lists and post-its. But sometimes those could be a bit cumbersome and and you also then need to remember to check those compensatory devices. So I like the idea that you have a multi-pronged approach that shows that it's not one size fits all, that it's really targeting and using precision medicine techniques to remedy the deficit, but also allows the person's natural ability to compensate as well instead of hinging our our hopes on number of pieces of paper or technology. Right, exactly. And and as I said in the talk, I think we're always going to be using compensatory strategies. I mean, everybody's using a phone or a date book or a diary or some kind of, you know, Alexa, whatever it is mm-hmm. you might mm-hmm. want to be using to remind you to do things. But the more that we can get people's baseline just kind of ability to remember as strong as possible, then they can be more effective at using those compensatory devices and maybe right. not have to depend on them so much. So the day that they forget it, they may not be completely lost. Um, right. And also, as I mentioned in the talk, you have to have a certain baseline prospective memory ability to use these items. Mm-hmm. So you have to be able to remember to get your phone and turn it on and get to the calendar app and not say, what was I doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, you have to exactly. be able to hold it in mind for at least five minutes is what we've sort of estimated. Right. So we look at our training as sometimes just getting you to the point where you can use the app mm-hmm. or where you can use the date book or whatever it is. Yeah, and there's such a variety of ability levels within uh, the populations we study that's important to really see the patient and what's going to be useful to them. And also, what are they most comfortable with? You know, if you have someone who's used to an iPhone, then maybe don't put an Android in front of them, even as a lot of us can relate to that level. So I think um, it's important to think about these with our rehabilitation strategies as well. Yes, exactly. And even so, I was involved in a study where they were able to get funding to get people smartphones, because I think I had mentioned most oh. of the people that I work with, but mm-hmm. don't have them. But but even that, so now you've given them this expensive device. Mm-hmm. Do they? Are you paying for their plan for the mm-hmm. rest of their life? Yeah. Are you helping them get yeah. Wi-Fi if they're not going to have a plan? And right. then some of these people were, you know, terrified of losing it. And even yes. some people who have resources. There's so much anxiety and stress about losing the device. It may not be worth it. They might be right. better off with a paper date, date book yep. than saying to them, oh, no, 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 you'll love it. It's right. great. Yep. <laughs> and in enhancing uh, or increasing someone's stress and anxiety level probably isn't good for their perspective memory abilities in general anyway. Right. So then we're or doing ourselves a double disservice. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, well, thank you very much for coming to visit with us today. We definitely learned a lot and hope to incorporate some of this into our new future directions here at Kessler Foundation. So thank you very much. Thank you. For more information about Kessler Foundation and our researchers, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's K-E-S-S-L-E-R-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.